Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Today's reading is Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Andrew. It's kind of a hard right turn after praying in faith for our friends, and then Andrew reads this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, as we come to this passage, this is the fourth of five exhortations uh, that the writer of Hebrews makes to the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew Christians, warning them. Now, as we look at this particular warning, he's had four, uh, you know, others thus far. There's going to be one more a little bit later in the book. But as he comes, it's kind of like a warning as you think about uh, equipping. Or um, if, I, if I think about warning, if someone has a child and they're warning their child not to go into the street. This is not the time where the child's already running into the street and they're just screaming uh, their head off trying to catch them. This is really more like the training where maybe they're sitting down with the child saying, hey, uh, make sure you don't go into the street. Uh, at this time, be, be aware of the cars that are around. If you're playing with a ball and it goes in the street, you don't want to run. Maybe you take the kid to the edge of the street and you see the cars going by. So it's a time of instruction. So the warning that's being done here is really like the warning of a father. It's, it's gentle. It's not harsh, but it's serious and sobering, just like a parent would want to be serious with their child so they wouldn't go running into the street. The author here is being serious, and he's warning. And the warning that he is making is a warning about apostasy. He wants them to be sobered about apostasy. Now, we don't use that word apostasy every day. Uh, it's, it's a word that uh, refers to uh, individuals who maybe at one time professed faith in Christ, but now they, they no longer look like they're walking with Jesus, even denying Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times that we don't struggle with sin uh, or uh, maybe we find ourselves in a place of discouragement. And we'll talk a bit about assurance of salvation a little bit later, but we want to be sobered by this reality as he unpacks for us what an apostate looks like. So what, what is an apostate? What, what does that look like? What does someone look like if 
they're rejecting Christ? Well, the first thing is they, in, they deliberately embrace a lifestyle of sin. Look at your Bibles. Verse 26, right there at the beginning. For if we go on sinning deliberately. So this is a pattern of sin. Going on sinning. Being intentional. Even not holding back from living a lifestyle of sin. So this isn't, this isn't someone who's struggling with something. This isn't even something where, where someone's struggling with maybe a, a, a particular type of sin that seems to afflict them all the time. This is someone who is embracing sin. Someone who's not trying to fight sin or resist it at all. Someone who even refuses to repent. That's what is in view here. Um, maybe a picture for us would be, a, I remember a pastor telling a story about his grandson who uh, had snuck into the pantry to get some gum. And so when he was caught, uh, there was you know, some instruction that happened there and uh, some discipline that occurred there. And then when the grandfather left, he kind of peered around the corner and saw, saw the grandson then go back into the pantry uh, feeling no remorse whatsoever and steal some more gum, right? That's the pattern, that there's, there's no remorse over, over sin. John Calvin explained it this way. He said, uh, the, the apostle here describes sinners, not those who fall in any kind of sin, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There's a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind which makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ. So, deliberately embracing sin, that's what an apostate does. The second thing, they, they appear to be a Christian, but they're not. They appear to be a Christian, but they're not. Look back at verse 26. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. So, in view, these are people, these aren't just the average run-of-the-mill person who doesn't know Jesus. No, these are people who have, have heard the gospel. These are people who have been around uh, the truth of the gospel and, and maybe even verbally professed faith at some point, but they're not converted. Look at verse 29. At the second half of verse 29 says, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So this is someone who, who had some, some maybe outward change of sorts, because we can change behavior. Anyone can change behavior for a time, but there was no inward transformation that took place. You know, when we talk about doing baptisms, we're going to do baptisms at our uh, our church picnic, when we talk about them, we talk about this is an outward sign of an inward work. Because, because conversion isn't about outward behaviors, it's about an inward working of the Spirit, of convicting of sin, of repenting of sin, and of change. But this person, there wasn't an inward working. They acted for a while as if they were washed, but, but, they, but they weren't. But their conscience is is seared. So it says, outrage the spirit of grace. Their conscience was seared to the point where they're, they're no longer responding to the Holy Spirit. 
Sometimes they might insist that they're Christians. They might say it in name and give some Christian verbiage, but their life does not testify to the reality of a transformed life in Christ. They will, they will embrace a lifestyle of sin, as we've talked about, and, and their life will be in, in conflict with the clear teachings of Scripture. The most famous apostate, would be Judas Iscariot. I think he, he walked with Jesus in his ministry for three years. He heard clear teaching about the kingdom of God. He was even entrusted with certain responsibilities, but he clearly did not have a change of heart because he was the one that went and sold Jesus, that, that sold him out. He never had that conviction of sin. He kind of, kind of looked like someone who was a, a Christ follower, but he wasn't a Christ follower. Now, I know as we talk about apostate, there, there are those who are here, maybe those listening online, or maybe you know a family member who, who struggle. And you hear this category, you read a text like this, and you immediately think, is this me? Is this me? Have have I gotten to the place where I've been toying, I'm on the edge, and I've, I've fallen off, and there's no more hope for me? Is, is that me? Yes, the, 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 there is a warning here, but that's not necessarily you. Though there is a warning that we need to heed, and we need to understand the sobering reality of what happens to the fate of an apostate, there is encouragement for those of us who are in Christ. And again, hold on just a little bit. We're going to get to some of that encouragement. But I don't want to go too, too far without addressing that reality because we can kind of feel like we're, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. Like, oh, maybe this is me. I don't know. And, and we can kind of get bound up in maybe, maybe I'm not a Christian. Why do I even bothering with all this? No, there's, there's fruit that we can see, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But we should be sobered by what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Because there are real consequences if you deny Christ, if you live a life in wanton rebellion, rejecting God's goodness for you. There, there are real consequences. And let's look at what those consequences are because we need to be sobered by them. The first comes was that there's no sacrifice for sin. Look at verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains sacrifice for sins. We've talked all throughout the book of Hebrews about Jesus, about Jesus being the sacrifice for our sins, about the fact that Jesus is the only one who can sacrifice for us, be the sacrifice for us, can pay the penalty for our sins. So if you reject Christ, there, there is no sacrifice out there that's sufficient to cover your sin. There isn't one. We should be sobered by that. The only means by which you can be saved is if you trust in Christ and you give your whole life to him. Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say, follow me and you can do a little bit of this. No, he wants everything. It's all in. So there's no sacrifice for sins if we reject Christ. There should also be a real fear of judgment. I mean, 
Verse 30, as Andrew read, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. God is just. He's a just God. We wouldn't want a God that wasn't just. We wouldn't want a God that just kind of let everything slide. No, it's okay. You know, it's fine. No, we, we want justice. We see things that are wrong. So he is a just God, so he must judge, and he will judge. He doesn't just kind of flippantly throw out judgments like an impatient parent. No, it's measured. And when we reject the goodness of God, there is a description here in verse 27 of what the judgment looks like. Look at verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In the Old Testament, judgment had a pattern of fire. And we know in the end, at the end, at the end of days, judgment will include fire. In Revelation 14.10, it talks about it in this way, tormented with fire and sulfur. Matthew 25.41, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark 9.48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Friends, hell is a real place. And for those who say, well, the scriptures don't talk about, or how, like we just read a few verses. There are tons more. There's a place of everlasting torment that is justly carrying out the, the, the punishment, the judgment against those who reject God and his good ways. And we should be sobered by that. We should be even more sobered by the fact that apostates experience a more severe judgment. Look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? Coming here is not a game. When we come here, we're not checking off a box so that other people can look, look at us nicely. When we come here, we come here because we've been transformed by the power of the gospel so that when we sing, we can anticipate when we are going to be seeing Jesus face to face. This isn't a social club. And so we should never come for any other reason than to worship the King of Kings. And we should be sobered by the reality if we treat the church as a game and use it for our own selfish means while secretly sinning and rejecting God because there is a sobering reality. For those who do that, it seems like there's, there's almost a stricter judgment as if, as if eternal punishment wasn't, wasn't sobering enough. There are consequences to our sin. Even when we are forgiven, we know because we know that if we confess our sins, we're faithful and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We know if the Lord convicts us of our sin, we can come and experience that forgiveness. But it's not that the consequences don't go away. I mean, think of David. When David murdered and committed adultery, his life was never the same. 
His life was never the same. Charles Spurgeon said, think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross. Think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross. We don't want to think lightly. We aren't, I'm not here to, to guilt anyone into the kingdom, but hell is a real place. And we should be sobered by it. And when we look at the cross, like the cross that's behind me, when we look at the cross, it is a symbol of judgment. It is the place where Jesus went to pay the penalty for those who would trust in him. But he did experience judgment. He experienced not the judgment that he deserved, the judgment that we deserve. And so we don't want to think lightly of hell because we don't want to think lightly of the cross because that is a place of judgment. But the wonderful thing for us is it also is the place where we see God's love. Judgment is real. But the grace of God is real in sending his son to pay for our sins. Now remember this This warning is coming in context of what we talked about last week. Remember where we were last week, right at the end of our time in verse 25, we we learn, or verse 24 says, let us stir up, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this, this warning comes in the context of community. We need to remind each other of what Christ has done. We need to stir one another up because we're prone to wander. You may be sung to him, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're prone to do that. We're prone to drift. So that's why we need to stay in community so we can stir up one another. So we need to be sobered by the warning and heed the call. But the the, the call that you need to respond to most is to come to Christ. If you've not trusted in Christ, be sobered by the warning, but you don't have to experience the consequences that are shared there if you trust in Jesus and give your whole life to him. But even once you have trusted Christ, as we've talked about, we can doubt. We can read this passage and we can struggle and think, well, maybe this is talking about me. Well, even though there's a warning, the passage doesn't end with, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he, the next verse, he goes, but, so look at verse 32, but hold on, you're not meant to be left, that's a warning for you, but I don't want you to be left in condemnation. I want you to hear some truth. There's a way forward for you to persevere in the present. Look at your Bibles. Verse 32 but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The author of Hebrews, look what he does right right here. 
He doesn't stay in the warning. He goes right to the place of, well, what's the way forward? And the first thing I want you to know as the way forward to persevere is to actually look back. The best way to go forward is first to look back. And he looks back at their life. He says, recall the former days after you were enlightened. He's, he's saying, look back. Look back to the time when you first came to Christ. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? You remember the things that maybe happened to you surrounding that time? Some of you, maybe there were some addictions that you were set free from. Some of you, your, your heart was changed. You remember those times. There was a joy that you experienced. There was fruitfulness that you experienced that you had never experienced before. He wants you to look back. He wants you to remember that time. Why does he want you to remember that time? Because it points out that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Even if in this present moment, the things that are going on so cloud what's, what, what you're dealing with, he, he wants you to be assured. He wants them to be assured. Look what God did. And then he kind of unpacks some of the things that God did. He says, God met you in your suffering. He talks about the struggle. So maybe you don't feel like you can identify exactly with the things that they experienced but he says, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So kind of struggle, like athletic contest, working. There, there is a, a struggle that was there. Because we receive pushback when we come to Christ. Sometimes from friends who stopped hanging out with us. Sometimes you feel the pushback in your own heart because of the struggle against flesh and, and spirit. You feel that pushback. But the apostate, when struggle comes, when difficulty comes, they bail. They bail because they're not changed. You are here this morning. Some of you barely got here this morning. Maybe it's because you were up too late. Maybe it's because you're just completely emotionally shot and you're just, but you're here or you're tuning in from home, or you're watching this later. You're here. That means God is at work in you. You haven't bailed. He hasn't left you. So God has met you in your suffering. God has also changed you to serve others. Look what, what happened to them. So sometimes they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. So there was a transformation that took place in these Christians to where they partnered with others in prison. They, they walked with them. And that wasn't a small thing for them. One historian noted, he said, in the first century, prisoners had no means of survival apart from the visits of friends who brought food and water and clothing. But such visiting placed one in grave danger. Yet they did it willingly. And in so doing, some visited Christ who said, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and you visited me. That's what they had experienced. And the writer of Hebrews wants to remind them of that. You, you've loved people. You've cared for people. That's one of the things that encourages me in my life when I find myself discouraged or tempted to think, yep, I've, I've fallen off the wagon. I can't get back on. 
whenever I care for somebody else. Because before I knew Christ, I didn't care about anybody else but numero uno. I learned how to say nice words so you thought I really cared about you, but really there was something behind that. If I served you, you would serve me. If I said nice things to you, you would say nice things to me. When you love others, it's evidence of God's grace in your life. 1 John 4.12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He's changed you. So look for the way he's changed you. If you're in your small group and there's others who are discouraged, look for the ways that God's changed them. Look for the ways that they love other people. Say, no, when I see you do this, I don't do that. There's some grace in your life to do that. God's at work. So be encouraged. So God's met you in suffering. God has changed you to serve others. God has given you joy in the midst of adversity. Here's the description of their joy in the midst of adversity. For you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I don't think I need to unpack plundering. We all kind of get what that means, right? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Their stuff was taken. Maybe some of it was burnt. Some was just stolen. They couldn't get it back. And they were joyful. Like, that doesn't make any sense in the midst of suffering. But those who've trusted Christ, you do experience suffering. Not that you're never discouraged, but there's hope that we have. Why is there hope that we have? Because it says, for them, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So whenever you see a glimmer of hope when you're in the midst of suffering, it's not the power of positive thinking. It's that you're looking beyond the now into the future. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So when you see joy in the midst of suffering, it's evidence that God is at work in you. So look back. To persevere now, look back. If you struggle now, look back and see that God has been at work in you. But also I want to encourage you to look back at the lives of saints who've gone before. Start with this group of saints. Spend some time reading verses 32, 33, 34 and meditating on it. So this wasn't something the writer of Hebrews was exhorting them to go and do. This is a story about what had been done. I'd encourage you to pick up, you know, a, a book. Um, pick up a book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Or there's a, there's some few, a few books. I grab these off my shelf. Fox's Book of Martyrs. I haven't had the updated version. Uh, all that means is they, they, you know, John Fox wrote it in like the 1600s. So obviously he couldn't write anything past the 1600s because he went to be with Jesus. So somebody else added some stories since then. They didn't change the stories he wrote. These are just stories about martyrs. Or there's a couple of books, volume one and volume two, called Jesus Freaks from the Voices of Martyrs, Stories of Saints. You know, those are books. You can look at those later if you want to. But I'd encourage you to look at the lives of saints who've gone before. Because as we encounter trials and suffering, and even persecution, you will be served. We will be served to have studied about God's faithfulness in the lives of saints who've gone before. Because 
even just looking at, at these individuals, how did they endure? When you read a story, ask, how did they endure? What was, it was different. Look how they sacrificially loved others. I mean, these Christians went to, when, to love others. It wasn't, it wasn't just, I figured out how to make a casserole to make for someone when they were in need. Though That's an awesome way to love your neighbor. No, they personally put themselves in danger to love their neighbor. How are we going to have grace to do that? We need to know that we have a greater hope. How did they have joy in the midst of suffering? Again, they had joy because it says in verse 34, you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. You knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. They, so he's looking back to encourage them, but he's pointing out to them, how in the world did you do this? Well, you were able to endure in the present because you were looking forward. So we look back and we look forward. We look forward to what's going to happen in the future. Because perseverance happens by looking forward. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. We talked about the confidence that we have in the truth of who Christ is last week. And we don't want to throw that away. He's saying, no, don't throw that away. Don't be like the apostate. Hold on to that. For you have need of endurance. Don't think you have it all together. Don't try to be like, yeah, I got this figured out. I'm just going to muscle it out. The writer of Hebrews is pretty frank. You have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. Our, our life as a Christian is really described more like a race, as Paul talks about. Yesterday, I got to go to a, a race. Uh, Wes, if you don't know, he's, he's a runner. And so he ran the race. So why is that cool? I didn't run the race. But I went and I, I cheered him on. Chris Gums and I, we went, we cheered him on. And um, how did Wes run the race? He didn't do what I did when I ran that race five years ago, like bolting out of the gate, running as fast as he can, and then gassing out like a mile down the road. No, he paced himself because he was still just a smiley face halfway through when we were cheering him on. We didn't, we didn't even see him finish. I think he finished, but we we're out of shape. We just cheered him on in the middle. We couldn't make it back to the finish line where he got there, but we just guessed he finished. How did he finish? Because he persevered. He persevered. Theologian Michael Kruger said, the mark of the true believer is not perfection, but perseverance. So believe that, brothers and sisters. The mark of the true believer is not perfection, but perseverance. So realize you have a need, but realize you have much to look forward to. It says you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There's promises that we've been given. We've studied about some of them as we've studied the book of Hebrews, but you know what some of those promises are. Certainly eternity with Christ, eternity with the Father. We have treasures in heaven. 
all the things that we do that are eternally motivated. We're going to have treasures when we get to heaven. There's going to be rewards for the things that you do. So not only did Jesus die for your sins, but you're going to be rewarded for the things that you do as you walk and live for Christ. There's, there's going to be no more tears. There's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more crying. There's going to be no more pain. We have a few things to look forward to. So he's saying, look forward. We don't talk about heaven enough. In fact, I think we probably talk more about preserving these bodies that are wasting away. And those of you who've hit 40, 50, and maybe a few more, that they can affirm. Bodies are wasting away. I try to do things to preserve it. It's a futile effort. But saints of old may not have had those opportunities, so they were constantly talking about eternity. Why were they talking about eternity? Because they needed to persevere in the present. And the way to persevere in the present is to look to the future. You look back to what Christ has done in your life, and you look to the future because this light and momentary affliction, as it says in 2 Corinthians, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So as we navigate life, which seems like it's flipping and turning all around, like a trapeze artist at the, the circus. I, we're really the trapeze artist that has the net underneath. You can do those flips and stuff if you know you're not going to splat on the ground. We have a net. It's eternity with Christ. It's not something in this world. It's we're looking to the next because Jesus is coming back. Look back at your Bibles. For yet a little while, in verse 37, it says, for yet a, little, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Why is he not coming yet? Because God hasn't said it's time. It's not because Jesus is lazy and he just, you know, he's a little tired. He's ready. As soon as God says go, he is not going to delay. Jesus is coming back. So let's live today in light of that day. Let's resolve to live by faith, as the last two verses say. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. So it's encouraging Brothers and sisters, we're, we're not, we're not going to shrink back. You should be warned, but don't shrink back. But those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, this sets up the next number of verses. We're almost going to have a mini-series in the book of Hebrews in chapters 11 and 12 talking about faith. If you want to learn more about faith, we're going to have lots to learn about faith. So the writer calls these saints to have faith. Don't shrink back have confidence. You may have heard of the, the famous high-wire aerialist known as the, as the uh, Flying Walendas. Maybe you've heard of them. Maybe you've also heard about the tragic death of their leader, the great Carl Walenda. In 1978, shortly after the great Walenda fell to his death, he was traversing a 75-foot high wire in downtown San Juan, Puerto Rico. So after his death, his wife, who was also an aerialist, discussed what he did. She discussed that, that fateful walk. 
She recalled all Carl thought about for three straight months prior to the walk was falling. It was the first time he'd ever thought about that. And it seemed to me that he put all his energies into not falling rather than just walking the tightrope. Mrs. Melinda added added that her husband even went so far as to personally supervise the installation of the tightrope, making certain the guy wires were secure, something he had never even thought of doing before. Melinda's loss of confidence was a warning and even contributed to his death though his past performances gave him every reason to be confident. The way forward in Christ isn't to stop something from happening. The way forward is to look, to look at what's ahead, to look back at what Christ has done and to look forward. Remembering is the place to begin. Remembering what Christ has done in your life, remembering what Christ has done in the lives of others, and remembering what he's told us about what's coming in the future. Throughout history, the people of God are told to remember. And so that's what we're going to do right now this morning. We're going to remember what Christ has done by taking communion together. We're not going to do this quickly or lightly. Because what Jesus did on the cross was cataclysmic. It, it changed all of the trajectory for human history. So as we prepare our hearts to take communion Let's spend some time praying. So this is not going to be in groups. This is just going to be by yourself. As the worship team plays some music, we want to consider what Christ has done. And if you're here this morning and you're aware, God's brought conviction about patterns of sin in your life, I want to encourage you to just take some time right now and pray right where you are and know that 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 conviction is the Holy Spirit. That means God's at work and he wants to, he wants to deal with you, not in the way that you deserve. And if you're someone who's never trusted in Christ, he wants to deal with you and not in the way that you deserve. He wants you to have intimacy with him. So during this time while they pray, while they play, let's just pray and prepare our hearts for taking communion, but also you may have a loved one who you feel like is described by the first half of this passage. And the entire time that we were in that part of the passage, you're just burdened for them. Maybe it's a child who lives with you. Maybe it's a child who's grown. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's your best friend from high school. And you're burdened for them. Let's 
Let's pray for them right now. Let's pray that they would encounter the risen Christ. I want to hold out for you just some, some realities. David, who though his life was, was never the same, God did redeem his life after committing murder and adultery. Peter, after denying Christ three times, Jesus welcomed him in at the end of John and said, will you feed my sheep? And he commissioned him out to be one of the greatest evangelists that the world's ever known. So don't think that there's no hope left for that individual who is currently living as as if an apostate, but we're going to pray that they're just wayward and they need to come home. So we got two different categories to pray for and we're not going to rush. Let's just take a few minutes and pray right where you're at. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I thank you that there is forgiveness, that when we look at the cross, it's not just the place where we are aware of judgment, but the way, the place that we're aware of your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here this morning that are struggling with the assurance of their salvation. I pray, Lord, that they be reminded afresh of what Christ has done and that they would see the work that you have done in their life and be assured of the promises that they've read about in Scripture. Assure us all, Lord. Give us that hope. Guide us, direct us. And we pray, God, for your mercy upon those that we love that don't know Christ, whose lives maybe at one time were marked by a measure of faith, but right now they... They're wayward, and we ask, God, that you would draw them, that you'd bring them home like the prodigal who came running into the arms of the Father. Lord, what's most important is not that they run into our arms, but they run into yours. And so I pray, God, that you would save them, you'd transform them, and that you'd redeem them. Lord, thank you that that's the mission of our friends who are going to the Dominican, and that's the mission that you're on to redeem. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. 
let's remember together. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Because that bread would represent his body, which would be given for them. Let's take the bread together. Then after they took the bread, he took a cup, which would represent the blood that would be shed on our behalf to wash us. This red, this, rep- this representing the red blood that would not stain us, but rather wash us as white as snow. Let's, let's take the cup together. Scripture says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.